Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Some years back, the Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam wrote a uh, powerful and influential book called Bowling Alone. And in it, he described or outlined the decline of bowling leagues in America and showed that as a sample of a larger social and sociological trend, which was the the decline of organized institutions across the country. It's not only bowling leagues, it's fraternities and sororities. It's clubs like the Masons and the Shriners and the Elks. It's organized religion. I was just on a bus trip to Washington, D.C. with several other local uh, faith leaders from uh, across the Christian community in our city, and we spent a considerable amount of time on the bus talking about the decline, uh, at least numerically, of organized religion in America uh, over the last couple of decades. This is not only a phenomenon that is felt in the Jewish community, but is felt by the Christian community, by Catholics and by Protestants, Probably by Muslims too, for all I know, although the research is not quite as good on the Muslim community. They don't fund as many studies as the Jewish community does of itself. There's a decline of organizations and institutions across the country and across the world, and this has been happening, at least the Western world, and this has been happening over the course of a couple of decades. The trend may have reached its apotheosis in the last year or two. It really hit me like a lightning bolt as I was listening to the analysis of the upcoming French election and to hear about the factors that led to the rise of Marine Le Pen and also of her challenger, uh, Macron, who are both in their own ways rejections of institutional politics in France, of the old order, of the existing structures within that society. And of course, one does not need to be a political expert or a social expert to draw the comparisons between the French presidential election and our presidential election that occurred a few months ago and elections that have occurred across the Western world over the past year or two. They are time and time again, they have been stunning repudiations of the existing order and of existing institutions as if People are saying time and time again, our institutions have failed us. 
Our institutions have betrayed us. The old authority should no longer have authority, and we need to go a totally different direction. We need to go our own way. We need to topple what exists and replace it with something else. We don't know what the something else is yet, but it has to be replaced with something else because the existing order has betrayed us. Now, there is validity to that opinion. There is validity to that view. It doesn't come from nowhere. In a lot of ways, the decline of institutional life, the decline of organizational life in America, the repudiation of institutions that we've been seeing over the past few years in elections across the world are well-founded. In many ways, Institutions and traditional authorities have betrayed people. This is at least as old as Watergate, when we were awakened to the reality, although it was probably a pre-existing reality, that power corrupts and that we should be wary and skeptical and maybe even cynical about those who hold power. It was true in Watergate. It was true when we learned about the horrific abuses in the Catholic Church. Or every time we saw a leader of an evangelical church or a Protestant church be accused of some form of embezzlement of church funds, of, of corruption of various sorts, of Rabbis who abuse their congregants' trust. This has happened time and again. The skepticism and distrust of institutions is in some ways well-founded and validated and justified over the course of modern history. But one also needs to look not very hard to see the ways in which the erosion of institutional life and organizational life in America and elsewhere is a, not a neutral phenomenon. In many ways, it has been a corrosive and dangerous phenomenon. Many sociologists have linked, Putnam among them, have linked the decline of these organizational structures and the rejection of traditional institutional authority to the breakdown of our society on numerous levels and on numerous fronts. The anxiety and the chaos of the moment is in part because of the institutions that we are rejecting, but also exacerbated in their own way because of our rejection of the institutions. So what are we to do? In a society in which there is justified skepticism of institutions and organizations and their authority over us, and also in which we are seeing the dangers of a society in which those institutions are shattered or no longer exist. The biblical book of Judges points out that latter reality in very stark terms. The book of Judges 
portrays a society in which there is no more institutional authority. The institutional authority of Moses and Joshua and Aaron that existed in the time of the wilderness and in the time of the conquest of the land of Canaan has broken down. There is no monarchy yet of Israel. And all there is is a series periodically of charismatic chieftains that emerge to lead Israel primarily to military victory. But in between, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And every person did what was right in his or her own eyes. And to the book of Judges, it is not a neutral phenomenon when people just did what was right in their own eyes. When people did all that was right in their own eyes and each and every person deciding for themselves what would be the authoritative way of acting, there was total chaos, total social breakdown. People died because of that. Wars erupted because of that. Anarchy and chaos existed because of that. It's an unsustainable situation when everybody in society acts as an island to themselves. It's why our founders recognize that people form social compacts. People form governments together so that we avoid the excesses of people acting according to each of their own interests. So that every individual's interest is reined in so that there's an organizational structure and boundaries and rules and shared norms that govern behavior. And when those don't exist anymore, it's a dangerous situation. So what do we do in a situation in which the traditional authority and organizational structures and institutions have in some ways betrayed us and are rife for criticism, ripe for criticism, and in which also there is incredible danger in rejecting the organizational structures and traditional authorities and institutions outright and replacing them with we don't know what. Our Torah portion this week, I think, provides some insight. At the beginning of Parshat Achremot, we are reintroduced to a story that happens a couple of weeks ago, at least in our chronology, in the Torah portion a couple of weeks ago, Parshat Shmini. We hear of the death of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's two oldest sons, who are killed because they entered the innermost part of the Mishkan, the innermost part of the sanctuary, and took uh, fire pans with them and offered an ish zara, which we, scholars debate what that means or whether that's actually relevant to what their sin was. They offered an ish zara and fire burst forth from the altar in the uh, innermost sanctuary and consumed them and killed them. That portion in some ways is kind of put on hold and we're reintroduced to it at the beginning of this week's Torah portion. We read... Vayomer Adonai El Moshe, excuse me, before that. We read, Vayedaber Adonai El Moshe, Achorei Mot Shnei Bnei Aaron, Bekorvatam Lifnei Adonai, Vayamutu. God spoke to Moses after the death of the two children of Aaron, 
in their approaching close before God, and they died. And what follows is, as I mentioned before, a description of the prescribed ritual for the innermost part of the sanctuary. How one is supposed to conduct themselves in the innermost part of the sanctuary. The exact offerings that are supposed to be offered there in the precise time to offer it so that Aaron might avoid what happened to his children. But the rabbis of the Midrash read a very close read of that opening verse and notice that it actually has some redundancies. It says, mot Why is this taught? Because it says in Leviticus chapter 10, So it says that in Leviticus chapter 10, that the children of Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu took each one of them his firepan. The children of Aaron, They didn't take advice from Aaron. Nadav ve'avihu lo natlu etza mimoshe. Then it names them by name, Nadav and Avihu, and says that we call them not only the children of Aaron, but also by their names, because not only did they not seek out guidance from Aaron, but they didn't seek out guidance from Moses. Ish machtato, ish ish me'atzmo asa, velo natlu etza ze mize. So and it says that each man took his own firepan because each person did something of his own volition. They didn't confer with each other about the right course of action. Think about what the rabbis of the Midrash are saying here. What was it that resulted in the death of Nadav and Avihu? What resulted in the death of Nadav and Avihu, they the rabbis say, is that they didn't seek out guidance from the traditional institutional authorities of their time. The religious authority, Aaron, their father, they didn't ask his opinion about what they should do. The political, social authority of the time, Moses, they didn't ask his opinion about what they should do. Not only that, but they didn't even consult with each other. They didn't even check in with each other to say, hey, is this a good idea or is this not a good idea? In other words, what happened to Nadav and Avihu is precisely the breakdown of society that we experience in Judges. Every person just does what's right in his own eyes. They don't seek out the wisdom of traditional authorities. Now, why didn't they do that? Why didn't Nadav and Avihu turn to their father and say, hey, we have this great idea. We want to go bring our firepans into the most sanctum. Can we do that? Why didn't they go to Aaron? Why didn't they ask Moses? Why didn't they ask each other? According to many biblical scholars, the whole system of the Mishkan, the whole system of the tabernacle, is in some ways a repudiation or replacement of the sin of the golden calf. The Mishkan exists 
to create physical structure, physical space to encounter the divine in an appropriate way to counter the crimes that were committed by Aaron and the rest of the children of Israel during the sin of the golden calf. So then we might ask ourselves, if that's true, if Leviticus is a counterpoint to the crime of the golden calf, then we might know why Nadav and Avihu didn't bother to ask Aaron. Why didn't they bother to ask Aaron? Because Aaron was, in his own way, responsible for the sin of the golden calf. The people came to Aaron and says, we don't know what happened to Moses. And Aaron says, okay, give me all your gold. We'll throw it in the fire and we'll make a calf. And then the calf comes out or they make a calf. And Aaron says, okay, we're going to celebrate and we're going to have a festival and it's going to be great. Then Moses comes down and says, what's everybody doing here? Okay, fine. So Aaron is culpable in the sin of the golden calf, at least in some way. So why don't Nadav and Avihu ask Aaron? Because... The whole premise of the Mishkan, the whole premise of encountering the divine, is predicated on the betrayal of the institutional authority. So why didn't they ask Moses? That too, I think, is part and parcel of the sin of the golden calf. The sin of the golden calf would not have occurred, would not have existed were it not for Moses' failures of communication with the people. Their anxiety about whether Moses was coming back was in some way his fault too. So he, the institutional authority, also let Nadav and Avihu down. They also let the next generation down. So why not ask Moses? Because Moses is part of the problem in the first place, according to Nadav and Avihu. And so why not ask each other? Because they couldn't trust each other. Who knows in a system, in a society in which everybody is ready to act on their own anxieties whether or not I'm supposed to trust the person next to me. So there is a breakdown here of Nadav and Avihu's reliance and trust of the existing institutional authorities of their time. It's a valid, tr- it's a valid distrust. It's understandable, I think. And yet, it results in catastrophe. They die because of that distrust. They die because they don't seek out the opinion of Aaron and Moses and each other. So what are we to do? In a society, in a situation in which there is justifiable skepticism of institutions and their authority, and also incredible danger inherent in rejecting those institutions and their authority outright, what are we to do? And I think our tradition... Right. I think our tradition offers us a couple of ways forward. The first is the reason that the story of Nadav and Avi, who is connected with the ritual of Yom Kippur. If you look carefully at the ritual of Yom Kippur, it is an atonement for two things. The sins of Aaron and his sons, and the sins of the community. 
In other words, the way God tells Aaron to move forward after this catastrophe, the way God tells the institutional leaders, the institutional authority to move forward after this catastrophe is that he has to do some of his own cheshbona nefesh. He has to do some of his own soul searching. He has to do some of his own atonement because he is implicated in the reason that his sons were died, had died. It was at least partially his fault because of his role in the sin of the golden calf. And so he brings a par ben bakar lechatat. He brings a cow, a calf, for a sin offering, for a purification offering, because Aaron also has to acknowledge his part of the decay, his part of the problem. But that's only a piece of what's going on here. So it's true in our time that the institutions that are being rejected need to do their own soul searching and need to consider why it is that people are so uniformly rejecting them and change in accordance with that rejection. But there is... Right. But there's more than that. And here I want to bring in the opinion of an early medieval rabbi who's, I think, one of the greats but often forgotten of the Jewish tradition, Rabbi Sadia Gaon. Rabbi Sadia Gaon said there are four basic ways of knowing truth. Reason, revelation, tradition, and observation. Reason, revelation, tradition, and observation. Those are the four ways of knowing truth. Reason is what's right in my own eyes, how I reason things out, how I understand the world. Observation is science, is actually looking at the world, seeing how it works, making determinations about uh, how, what's true based on how we see the world working. Revelation, what does God say? And tradition, what do our accepted authorities say? What Sajagon adds to that is that you can't just pick one of those things and declare something true. In order for something to be true, those four things actually need to be in harmony one with the other. Something cannot be deemed true. Something cannot be deemed a thoughtful pathway forward, a useful pathway forward, a harmonious pathway forward, a good pathway forward, if it doesn't conform with the insights of all those four things simultaneously. And so what the rabbis are pointing out about Nadav and Avihu is that they operated entirely based on their own reason, based on their own thinking about what would be fine to do, and they didn't at all consider what God might say, what their authorities might say, and what they might learn from each other what they might learn from the facts. This, I think, is the insight of our Torah portion for our time and the insight of our tradition for our time. That institutions aren't vested with authority just because they're institutions. They are as ripe for betrayal and corruption as any one of us individually. And at the same time, we need them We rely on them for social cohesion and social structure 
for creating a society in which there's harmony and justice and peace. We need those institutions. And so the pathway forward is to not reject the institutions outright, but neither to trust them outright. To, as President Ronald Reagan once is famous for having said, trust but verify. Trust but verify. That's the insight of Rav Sadia Go'on as well. Trust but verify. The crime of Aaron's sons is that they had no trust. But our challenge is that we are operating exclusively within the realm of seeking to verify. And so Sadja reminds us, Rav Sadja reminds us, and our Torah portion reminds us, of the dangers inherent in rejecting those authorities outright. And the responsibility we all have to harmonize what we believe from our own reason with also the insights from institutions and their authorities, with the wisdom we learn from God, with the observation we have of nature. Only then can we build a society truly worthy of having God dwell in our midst. Only then can we truly have a society of justice, of righteousness, of peace, and the words of our Torah portion, of holiness. Shabbat Shalom.